0: On this occasion of Thanksgiving today, let's read Psalm 147. Psalm 147. The text for the sermon will be verses 7 through 11. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is comely. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem, he gathereth together the outcasts of Israel, he healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. He telleth the number of the stars, he calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord, and of great power, his understanding is infinite. The Lord lifteth up the meek, he casteth the wicked down to the ground. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving, sing praise upon the harp unto our God, who covereth the heaven with clouds who prepareth rain for the earth, who maketh grass to grow upon the mountains. He giveth to the beast his food and to the young ravens which cry. He delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise thy God, O Zion, for he hath strengthened the bars of thy gates. He hath blessed thy children within thee. He maketh peace in thy borders and filleth thee with the finest of the wheat. He sendeth forth his commandment upon earth. His word runneth very swiftly. He giveth snow like wool, he scattereth the hoarfrost like ashes. He casteth forth his ice like morsels, who can stand before his cold? He sendeth out his word and melteth them, he causeth his wind to blow and the waters flow. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye. The Lord. Let's consider together verses 7 through 11 this morning, where the psalmist exhorts us, sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving, sing praise upon the harp unto our God, who covereth the heaven with clouds, who prepareth rain for the earth, who maketh grass to grow upon the mountains, He giveth to the beast his food and to the young ravens which cry. He delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, last March in our Wingham congregation, on prayer day, we considered together Psalm 126 as we were looking ahead to the seed time, the sowing part of the year. And we heard in Psalm 126 about the sower who goes forth bearing precious seed and weeping as he carries that seed out into the field, and as he casts that seed out into the field, weeping because he knows as he casts forth that seed that it's vulnerable, that there are many, many ways in which that seed could perish in the field so that there would be no harvest. And so the psalmist pictures him weeping as he casts forth his seed out into the field. We sing of that in Psalter number 357, which for me, having grown up in a farming family, was a well-known Psalter number. The sower bearing precious seed may weep as in his toil he grieves, but he shall come again with joy in harvest time, with golden sheaves. But now the sowing season has passed. The seed has been sown. The crops have grown in the field. The Lord has sent the rain and the sunshine again. The crops have come to fruition. It's the autumn season. It is November, and the harvest has come. And perhaps the harvest is already completed here in these parts. And so a day of thanksgiving is in order. We gather together today to give thanks to God for the ingathering of the harvest and to acknowledge his goodness. As in Psalm 65, the psalmist writes, Thou crownest the year with thy goodness, and thy paths drop fatness. They drop upon the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered over with corn. They shout for joy. They also sing. But now we turn our attention to Psalm 147 this morning. And we notice that the psalmist exhorts us to sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. This particular psalmist may very well have been among the outcasts That He mentions in verse 2, when he says, The Lord doth build up Jerusalem, he gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. He may have been one of those outcasts, one of those captives who had lived in Babylon, but whom the Lord had gathered together out of Babylon, and through the decree of King Cyrus of Persia, had brought back to the land of promise, so that they were able again to build Jerusalem, to build the temple, to build the walls, to build their houses, to rebuild their life. And the psalmist speaks of that, those glorious, restoring mercies of the Lord, rebuilding them after a time of chastening and captivity. And he rejoices in the fact that God had sent once again the rain the precious rain, to water the fields and the valleys and the hills and to give grass and grain to man and beast. We too have felt like the psalmist, like the outcasts of Israel, for we too have gone through a time as a congregation and as a denomination, a time of chastening a time in which God's hand has been heavy upon us, a time in which God has sent painful things upon us in wave after wave after wave. But the psalmist calls us to sing with thanksgiving. And the psalmist points out that God is a God who restores and a God who rebuilds so that we have reason to give thanks. Notice what this returned captive writes about the Lord's mercies in verse 3. He healeth the broken in heart. He bindeth up their wounds. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifteth up the meek. He casteth the wicked down to the ground. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God. And in verse 13, He hath strengthened the bars of thy gates. Imagine the rebuilt city of Jerusalem and the bars and the gates strong again. He hath blessed thy children within thee. He maketh peace in thy borders and filleth thee with the finest of the wheat. The Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endureth to all generations. So sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. We take that as our theme this morning. Sing unto God with thanksgiving. Let's notice, first of all, the rain God prepares for the earth. The rain God prepares for the earth. Secondly, the delight God has in us who fear him. His delight in us who fear him. And finally, the calling we have to give him thanks. The psalmist exhorts us in our text, Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God for his marvelous providential care over us, as evidenced in the psalm, in the text, and throughout all of the scriptures, as well as in our personal experience. The psalmist calls us to sing with thanksgiving, particularly with regard to the rain showers that God had prepared for the land of promise. The psalmist acknowledges that God has taken care of the land, the land of Canaan, the land of promise, to which he brought them back to dwell. Now the land of Canaan was a land of hills and valleys, a land of mountains a land with very few lakes and very few rivers and streams. It was a land that was utterly dependent upon the early and the latter rains. And if those early and latter rains did not come, it would become an arid wasteland, a barren and thirsty land where no water was. As happened, for example, in the days of Elijah, when God withheld the rain as a punishment upon Ahab and Jezebel and the wicked in the land. The land of Canaan was specially designed by God so that it would be utterly dependent on the rain. The psalmist testifies that in his day, in those days of restoration, in those days of rebuilding, the Lord had also prepared and sent the rain showers once again. He lived in bright days, There was much to be thankful for. He testifies in verse 8 of our text that the Lord covereth the heaven with clouds. He prepareth rain for the earth. He maketh grass to grow upon the mountains. He giveth to the beast his food and to the young ravens which cry. The psalmist did not believe like so many people believe today that these things just happen. That these things just happen according to some fixed, eternal, unbreakable laws of nature. As if it just happens that there is water and the water evaporates and the water condenses and precipitates down upon the ground. The psalmist was not among those who think that things come by chance or the fact that we had good rain this year was just good luck or a good fortune. But the psalmist is among that great company of believers that are found throughout all ages of history who acknowledge the secret and almighty providence of the Lord our God as the invisible cause and source, and fountain of all the good things that he showers down upon us in the earth. The psalmist acknowledges Jehovah, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as the one who covered the heaven with clouds. God is the one who causes that liquid water in the lakes and streams and oceans of the earth, under certain conditions, under certain temperatures, to change from a liquid state into a gaseous state, into a vaporous state, so that it becomes lighter than the liquid. God is the one who causes that gaseous water to rise up above the earth, higher and higher and higher into the sky, and to join that great assembly of other molecules of water vapor into what we know as the clouds. The white clouds, the gray clouds, the black clouds. That's the work of God. That's the hand of God bringing that water vapor, causing those clouds to form. And it's the Lord who under other circumstances of temperature and pressure causes that uh, that water vapor to condense back into liquid, back into liquid drops, until millions and millions of drops of liquid water form in the clouds until it's too heavy. And by the pull of gravity, God brings it down in a glorious shower of rain. It's the handiwork of God. It's the Lord, according to the psalmist, who causes that rain to strike the earth, to soak into the ground, onto the hills and the valleys, and the fields to go down into the soil and to be sucked up and absorbed by the roots of the grass and the bushes and the trees up into the trunks, into the leaves to give drink unto the grass and the grain, the barley and the wheat, the trees bearing their fruit. The Lord is the one who causes those Plants to grow in the field, being nourished and refreshed by the rain and by the sunshine, to carry out that process of photosynthesis and to produce those beautiful verdant green leaves and those delicious fruits and vegetables and seeds and nuts and berries until the whole earth is lush and abundant with good things for man and beast. The Lord is the one, according to the psalmist, who opens up his hand to the beasts, verse 9, and gives to the beast his food, which includes the herbivores and the omnivores and the carnivores that roam throughout the fields and forests. The Lord opens up his hand to them. He gives them the leaves and the nuts and the berries and the flesh and the meat so that the beasts of the field are able to eat. And the young ravens which fly through the air looking for their food. The Lord opens his hand and gives to them to eat. Because the Lord loves all of his creatures. The Lord delights in all of the animals. We see that in the history of the flood. When God did not merely call Noah and his family into the ark, but also at least two. Of every kind of living, breathing creature on the earth, of the beasts and the cattle and the creeping things and the birds of the air, they all went into the ark, and the Lord saved them. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, our Lord said, and not one of them will fall to the ground, except it is the will of our Father in heaven. But then our Lord went on and said, And are not you of much greater value than many sparrows? The real reason for thanksgiving of which the psalmist writes in our psalm is not only that God beautifully and marvelously cares for the whole of his creation, but also and especially that he wonderfully cares for his own people in his great faithfulness and love. As a tender father, he provides us with all our needs. Verse 13, he hath strengthened the bars of thy gates, he hath blessed thy children within thee. He maketh peace in thy borders, and filleth thee with the finest of the wheat. When he lavishes our tables with meat and bread, with wine and oil and all manner of good things when he gives us a job so that we are able to go to work day after day and to use our hands or to use our minds and to use our feet, to use our strength and the power of the horse to labor, to be productive, to earn a living, to support our families to support the church and the poor and the causes of the kingdom. The Lord is the one who gives us all those good gifts and all those blessings. When we go to the grocery stores and we see the shelves full of all kinds of good things for the picking into our shopping carts, and we get to the checkout lane and we're able to tender our credit card or our debit card and to swipe it very simply and easily and pay for all those things, The Lord gives us that ability. The Lord gave us those blessings and those good gifts. When we go back to our home and we turn up the heat during the cold season and we have the roof over our head from the snow and the ice and the wind and we stay warm with our family, wrapped up in blankets before the fireplace, the Lord has given us all those good things. The psalmist teaches us that we must remember and acknowledge the wonderful, secret, mighty providence of our God as he governs and directs all things so that nothing comes to us by chance, but both prosperity and adversity and all things come to us through his fatherly hand. But the psalmist, when he looked at those beautiful showers of rain coming down to the earth, when he saw the rain pouring down upon his face and the earth drinking up those showers, he saw it as a token of God's everlasting covenant mercies, his saving, redemptive promises and mercies toward his people Israel. He saw it as a token of all the things God had done and promised to do for his people. We must remember that the psalmist, together with the children of Israel at that time, had gone through a time of grievous chastening. God had chosen them to be his special and holy people in the midst of the world, but they had forsaken him. They had turned to other gods and served those gods, and they had not listened to the word of the Lord. So he sent them into captivity in Babylon. For 70 years, they toiled under the hand of their captors. They wept tears by the rivers of Babylon. But then the Lord remembered them. The Lord raised up Cyrus, king of Persia, to issue a decree that the Jews may return to the land of promise. They may return to Jerusalem And they may build again the temple and the walls and the buildings. And they may restore themselves to their homeland. So that the outcasts of Israel were gathered back by the Lord, back to Jerusalem, back to their inheritance. And through much adversity and through much opposition, they were able to build again the foundation of the temple and the walls of the temple. They were able to restore the worship of God the sacrifices, the burnt offerings, they were able to rebuild their homes, their lives, their fields, their vineyards, and the walls around Jerusalem because God strengthened the bars of their gates and made them strong again. And the Lord also gave to them and preserved in their hearts and minds the precious hope of the Messiah. Because God continued to preserve in their midst that little remnant of Jews in Jerusalem. He preserved in their midst the line of David. The line of David continued to run through their midst in the person of Zerubbabel and his descendants. So the children of God knew that the Lord is still keeping his promise. He's carrying forward the line, the seed, the promise. The coming of the Messiah. They were able to say it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord has remembered us in all of our woes. The Lord has built again Jerusalem. And the Lord is keeping His promise. Indeed, the Lord preserved that line of David from that time forward for many more hundreds of years through a period of great darkness and confusion in the history of the church until that line came down to a young virgin, espoused to a man named Joseph who lived in Nazareth, who were of the lineage of David. And through that young virgin... God himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, caused the long-awaited Messiah to be conceived and born, who was none other than the Son of God in human flesh. And that long-promised and long-awaited Messiah lived his perfect life, perfectly obedient to the Father. He earned a perfect righteousness through his life and suffering and death until being hung on the cross, bearing our iniquities and bearing our sorrows and bearing our sins, he suffered under the burden, not of chastening, but of the cursing, punishing wrath of God that we deserved for our sins. But he bore it up by the power of his Godhead until it was all finished, until it was all exhausted, until the justice of God was satisfied. And having finished His perfect work, having risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, He showered down the rain, the rain of the Holy Spirit upon His church and bestowed the riches and the bounties of salvation, of righteousness, peace, and joy through the Holy Ghost upon His church. So that the church received the hope, the joy of everlasting salvation, not this temporary picture in the land of promise, but the heavenly land, the eternal promise, the eternal Canaan that is yet to come. And so we can look at the experience and the writing of the psalmist and we can relate and we can apply it to ourselves. Because just like the children of Israel in the Old Testament, we as a church and we as a denomination have not always walked perfectly with our God. We have not always cleaved to Him as we ought to have. And God has looked down upon us. And He has seen the growth of prevalent sins. He has seen pride among us. He has seen haughtiness among us. He has seen worldliness among us. He has seen among us as a church and as a denomination that we loved the things of this world more than the things of God. We loved the pleasures and treasures of this life more than the treasures of the life to come. That we became more fixed upon these things than on the treasures that are forevermore. That we started to make idols and to serve idols rather than trusting and delighting in the Lord our God alone and many other prevalent sins. And so the Lord has given us a time of chastening, grievous, painful chastening as a denomination. And it's touched every congregation as well. But like the psalmist In the midst of it, and as we come out of it more and more, we see that the Lord has not forgotten us. But indeed, the Lord has chastened us in his love. He has chastened us because he loves us, because of his mercy and because of his grace, to do good to us, to correct us. When he sent the Israelites into captivity, the purpose was to destroy the the wicked, but it was to strengthen, to purify, and to build up the righteous. And that's what God does and is doing among us as well. And so the very chastening of God is a blessing and a mercy of God that He showers upon us in His love. But as He showers that chastening upon us, humbling us, bringing us to repentance, bringing us to correction, He remembers us. He restores us. He builds up again the walls of Zion. He strengthens the bars of our gates. He builds up again our homes and our families as we live in the midst of the land. And he preserves in our hearts the remembrance of what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done for us. Because unlike the psalmist, We no longer stand in the Old Testament era of waiting and hoping and looking for the first coming of the Messiah who will bring salvation, but we live in the day of reality. And we look back. And we can always look back and remember with thanksgiving what our Lord Jesus Christ has done in shedding His precious blood on the cross. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as the Lord rebuilds and restores and heals our broken hearts and binds up our wounds, as he lifts up the meek and casts the wicked down to the ground, as he strengthens the bars of our gates and blesses our children within us and makes peace in our borders, and fills us with the finest of the wheat. Then we're able to sing what the psalmist in Psalm 126 sang. When the Lord turned again at the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. In these years of chastening, beloved, we are to give thanks for all the blessings and riches that God bestows upon us, both of earthly and of spiritual blessings, and above all spiritual in Christ. But we must also learn and grow spiritually in the lessons the Lord is teaching us. And one of those lessons is certainly what the psalmist writes in verse 10 and 11. He delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh. Pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. The Lord does not delight in the strength of the horse. That's something that we need to learn. That's something we need to grow in. The psalmist doesn't mean to say that God literally does not delight in the horse. The horse is a magnificent creature of God. And the scriptures portray the horse to us as such, as a beautiful, majestic, powerful creature, a symbol of strength, a symbol of of undaunted power and valor, charging into battle and bringing victory this horse is a great creature of the Lord, and the Lord delights in his creatures, all of his creatures. He also delights in the legs of a man. He designed the legs of a man to serve the purpose of walking and running, jumping, dancing. He gives to our legs those abilities, and he delights in our legs. But what the psalmist means is that the Lord does not delight In people who put their trust in the strength of the horse. In people who put their trust in the legs of a man. The psalmist no doubt had his mind on the great empires of his day. The Babylonian Empire. The Persian Empire. The earthly pomp and pride of those ungodly and pagan emperors. It was exactly through the strength of the horse and the legs of a man that mighty emperors like Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus the Great and Alexander the Great and Caesar were able to conquer the world. They gathered together as many horses as they could. They gathered together a great assembly of the most powerful steeds in the empire. They loaded them with armor. They loaded them with mighty warriors, men of powerful legs who were able to jump on and jump off the horse to charge into battle. The more legs they had, the more horses, and the faster those horses and the stronger those legs, the more successful they could be in their battles, the more victorious, and they could extend their great empires. But as the children of Israel saw the success of those anti Christian empires around them, they too would be tempted to put their trust in those earthly powers. And they did. They put their trust in the power of Egypt to help them in their battles against Babylon. The strength of the horses of Egypt, the strength of the horses of Israel, the strength of the legs of our warriors. That will help us. That will save us. That will deliver us. But the children of Israel soon realized how wrong they were and how easily they can be crushed in battle. Defeated, destroyed, the horse's legs cut off, the horses burned, the valiant warriors fallen in battle, the city burned to the ground. The children of Israel soon realized There is ultimately no strength in the horse or in the legs of a man. The ungodly will always put their trust in such earthly powers. Imagine the Persians, after they have defeated an enemy. They gather together and have a great bonfire. And they dance and they shout and they sing as they drink their beer and their wine around their bonfire, and they give thanks to their gods. They give thanks to their horses. They give thanks to their legs. They give thanks to their emperor. But they don't give thanks to God. Those who put their trust in earthly powers and earthly pomp and pride do not have any thanksgiving for the Lord. The Lord takes no delight in that. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. And so that applies to us as well. We can look around us at the world. We can look at our powerful American nation with its powerful military, army, navy, marines. We can think of the power of our economy for so many decades the prosperity of our land. We can feel that we are unstoppable, invincible with all of our nuclear arsenal. We can feel that our economic prowess will certainly maintain prosperity and peace in our land. We can look to our hospitals. We can look to our medical technology, our breakthroughs. We can look at the power of the medical technology and we put our trust in those things. Just as the world around us that doesn't know God. They do. And what are men doing on this national Thanksgiving day? Are they giving thanks to the one true God and to him alone for all good gifts? Or do they look at the power of America and the power of the economy and the power of my job and of the almighty dollar, the power of modern medicine, and give thanks for that and for those things and for those people? That's paganism. That's unbelief. God does not take delight in that. And God does not take delight either when we put our trust and when we give thanks to men for spiritual blessings. God, do, God does not delight in the church that puts its trust in its traditions. That puts its trust In a hundred years of history, of strong, solid theology, and theologians, and professors, and ministers, God does not take delight in the church that is puffed up by its knowledge. The church that thinks we know it all, and there's nothing for us to learn from anyone else. We don't need anyone else. We have it all. God doesn't take delight in the church that thinks we can never fall. Other churches may fall. Other churches are falling. Other churches are apostatizing. But we will never fall. Not us. Not us. God does not take delight in the church that looks down its nose on everyone else. That's just taking delight and putting our trust in the strength of the horse in a different way, in the legs of a man. The Pharisees did that. The children of Abraham. The children of Abraham are we. We come from Abraham. Look at our lineage Look at our heritage. Look at our tradition. Look at who we are. We are righteous. Of course we are righteous. Of course we're the people of God. We're the circumcised ones. We're better than all those others out there. Remember the thanksgiving prayer of the Pharisee? I thank thee. There's a thanksgiving prayer. I thank thee, O Lord, that I am not like other men. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. I don't kill. I tithe. I fast. I go to church. I keep all the laws. I check all the boxes. I thank thee, Lord, that I am not like other men. It's a false humility. Rather, Be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh God. Because I'm not better than other men. We are not better than other churches. In ourselves. As individuals, as people, and as a group of people. In ourselves, as people. We are not better than the people in other churches. That's not to deny that we have to look for the true church, and we're bound to join the true church, and duty-bound to join ourselves to the church where the marks of the true church are most faithfully manifested as far as we can tell. We must. But then when we join that church and we maintain our membership in that church, we do so with humble gratitude. Humble gratitude. True humility. That's what the Lord delights in. Then on Thanksgiving Day, we don't pat ourselves on the back. The psalmist doesn't say, sing unto yourselves with thanksgiving. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Because the Lord takes pleasure, verse 11, in them that fear him, in those that Hope in his mercy. The Lord takes pleasure in those who recognize him as the creator and the ruler of the whole universe. Who when they look at every good gift, whether it is the armed forces or the money in my bank account or the medical technology or the lavish bounties of food on our tables or The loaded pantries and the stocked shelves and the peace and the prosperity of our land, and sees all of that as the gifts of God, which he can give and take away as he pleases. He delights in those who fear him, those who acknowledge him in reverence and humbleness. And who recognize I don't deserve any of those things and I ought never to think that I deserve them and I'm entitled to them and they're just going to continue and these things just happen according to natural processes and laws. But the soul who recognizes there's a living God and by the secret hand of his mighty providence, he He sent the rain. He sent the sunshine. He nurtured the crops in the field. He preserves the cattle on a thousand hills. He, He is the one. He. The Lord takes pleasure not in those who pat ourselves on our backs and boast, but in those who give all glory to Him. It's possible to give glory to God in a sham and false way, you know. It's possible to boast about how much we give glory to God. God hates that. He hates that boasting. He hates that pride. Give glory to God. Giving glory to God means that we humble ourselves. We truly recognize that we are dust. We are creatures. We are nothing. We are a tiny speck in a vast universe that God has created. And we're a sinful, sinful one. A sinful speck. And God is everything. God is everything. All glory, all honor, all praise I give to you, O Lord. For every blessing. And above all, for my salvation. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who honor Him, who truly honor Him, not just in their theology, not just in their articles and in their books and in their writings, but from the heart. That's what God looks for. That's what God delights in. And that's what God works in us, sometimes through painful chastening. The Lord delights in those who hope in his mercy. What do you hope in? When you struggle, when you go through adversity, when you are sick, when heavy burdens lay upon you, who do you hope in? we go to the doctor? That's good. We should go to the doctor. Do we go to the pastor, to the elders, the deacons? That's good. We should. God has given them to us to help us. But do we hope in them? Do we say, you're my only hope. This is the end of my road. I don't know where else to turn. You're it. You're it. You have to help me. If you can't help me, no one can. God doesn't take delight in that. He takes delight in those who hope in his mercy and then go to the doctor, who hope in his mercy, and hoping in his mercy go to the pastor and go to the elder and go to the deacon and go to the brother for help in the church whatever our problems might be. He takes delight in those who hope in Him, who look up to Him, who trust in Him, who get up every morning and they open their Bible. And when they go through times of anguish and struggle and pain and confusion, they open their Bible first and they read in the Psalms Oh God, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. You are my refuge and my strength. You are my shelter in distress. Deliver me, O oh God, deliver me. Who do you hope in, beloved? Who do you hope in when it comes to salvation? The hope of the psalmist was that God had preserved the line of David. And the promises are there. They're still there in all of this brokenness, in all of this chaos of the captivity, of the chastening, of the crumbling down of Jerusalem. There's still hope. The line continues. The Messiah, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Is that your hope? God is merciful to us in Jesus Christ. That's my hope in life and in death. I look to Christ as my only hope. I look to the mercy of Christ, the grace of Christ to carry me through all the way to glory. The Lord delights in that. And that's why he sometimes sends us chastenings. So that once again we will repent of our pride, of our boasting, of our trusting in the legs of a man and the strength of the horse, and all of our other sins. We will look up to Christ And lay hold on Christ. And find Christ to be so, so beautiful. So, so precious. And so the psalmist comes to us with the exhortation. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God. The word for thanksgiving in the text, the Hebrew word, literally means throwing or casting. And I think the idea there is that you cast your hands up. Usually we're using our hands down here to do all kinds of things. But when we're called to give thanks, the Lord is saying, stop what you're doing and throw your hands up and point and say by faith, it's you, Lord. It's all you. It all came from thee. All that I have. All that I possess. Nothing that I have comes from me. All that I have comes from Thee. That's thanksgiving. It's very simple. Simple. But only God can work it in the heart. And it can only flow out of the heart of faith. The unbelieving heart and put on a show of thanksgiving. But only the believing heart who has come to taste and to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living by faith in Jesus can throw up his hands and point and say, by faith, I acknowledge thee, my God and my Savior. That's thanksgiving. But the psalmist does not just exhort us to do that, but he exhorts us to sing. To sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. To sing praise upon the harp unto our God. And the word for harp there is that old instrument called the lyre, that stringed instrument, handheld. And David himself could pluck the strings so beautifully. And making music on the lyre, the children of God in those days were able to sing the psalms. And here the psalmist says, Throw up your hands. Point to God. Pluck the strings on the lyre. Make melody with music and sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing from your hearts. Are you able to sing, beloved? Are you able in the midst of all the turmoil, all the troubles of your life, my life, our churches, are you able to lay hold upon Christ and taste the sweetness of his love and his sacrifice on the cross and recognize the bounties that God has given to you and with a smile and with laughter and with rejoicing, sing, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. That's what the psalmist exhorts us to do here. You are able to do that. You are. As a child of God, we don't always realize it. We often feel gloomy and dark and broken. But the preaching of the gospel says, you are able to sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Lift up your voice. Lift up your heart. Lift up your hands to the Lord and sing to Him. Rejoice. Rejoice. And be exceeding glad. As the angels sang to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem, Behold, we bring you glad tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born today in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Rejoice and give glory to God in the highest. Sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. For he builds up Jerusalem. He strengthens the bars of the gates. He sends the rain in glorious showers. He gives us all that we need for this life and the life to come. And he is our God. Amen. Our Father, we give thee thanks. We lift up our hands by faith. And we point to thee and we acknowledge thee today as our God. We acknowledge Thee as the giver of all good and perfect gifts and the marvelous blessings of salvation. We thank Thee, Father, for chastenings, for trials, whether as a congregation or denomination and also in our personal lives, that we may grow, may we consider today our trials, that they are blessings that they are used by Thee to work patience in us, that we may grow, that we may learn more and more to trust in Thee, that we may grow in faith and repentance and love for Thee who has so amazingly first loved us. May this be a blessing then to us as we go forth from Thy house today. Forgive us, O God, and help us to forgive each other. In Jesus' name, amen.